But see, I cut the hair. It looks lovely. The hair looks great. <laughs> Just give me a second. I'm going to bring you in, okay? Okay. Jennifer Delazana, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure. And as I will most likely say in the intro, um, you and I have known each other for years. Uh, we met when you assisted me in attending a writer's conference. We ultimately, I represented you uh, as a literary agent up until the time when I closed my literary agency. And then you, I, uh, I believe you went on to uh, work with my junior agent, Shannon Orso, who has her own agency right now. Yes. Cool. And as I, I know you pretty well, <laughs> you know me pretty well, but I need other people to know you because you're one of those, you're a great example of how success does not have a straight line in the journey. And also how- I am a great example of that actually. <laughs> <laughs> and you are one of the more unusual people I know, and everyone I know is unusual and similar at the same time. We can talk about that. But you uh, have so many different interests and such a, a different background that led you to write about other things. I just think that you're, you're fascinating, <laughs> uh, which is one of the reasons why I signed you. Um, you're an excellent writer and an editor. And I just want to get right into where you grew up. Where I grew up? Oh, Pennsylvania. Uh, <laughs> Northeastern Pennsylvania, like an hour south of the Poconos. Um, not known as a haven for writers and editors. Actually. What was the town? <laughs> what? What was the town? Uh, Helfenstein. Yeah, I lived in Pennsylvania for eight years. I never heard of it. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, and I lived in Philly. You lived in where? Philadelphia. Oh, so my dad lived in Philly, so I have some connections to Philly. Um, but this is like three hours north of Philly. Uh -huh. um, tiny anthracite country, so coal mining country. <laughs> right, I was just going to say, for people who don't know, that's coal. Yeah. And in fact, it's probably close. There's a ghost town, and we may have talked about yes. this before. Oh, yes, yeah. Centralia. Yeah, so for people who don't know, first of all, there's a great book um, called uh, by Bill Bryson, who's an amazing writer, and it has to do with the Appalachian Trail, and oh, it's something about a walk. Ah, do you remember the name of that book? I'm going to look while I talk to you, but in, so he walks the Appalachian Trail with a friend of his in what is a mostly comedic, but also incredibly educational um story and in his walk he goes through um it's called a walk in the woods i recommend that book highly uh even though i don't represent bill bryson I, I, I there's a million people i don't represent who've written great books and you should read them um there's a town probably more than one town but the one that he goes through in the appalachian trail or just off of it in pennsylvania had to be abandoned because a fire broke out in the coal mine a mile or some, somewhere deep in the earth and they couldn't put it out and still can't to this day. And right. the surface of the roads got so hot, people couldn't live there. Yes. Now I, I live within a couple of miles of there. Oh crap. I rode so, my, I rode my bike there in high school. And it's, it's sort of like got that Chernobyl vibe in that 
<laughs> the houses are gone or what houses that are there are just they're abandoned and there are driveways to nowhere things like yeah. that right they were bought by the federal government and i think they probably plowed them all or something yeah yeah because yeah. it was dangerous. Although was so I think hot. there's like three people who still live there. Well, God bless them. But, I yeah. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, you escaped, sort of. You went to college in Florida? Is that no, where no, Albright no. is? No, no. Uh, Where's Albright? Reading, Pennsylvania. Okay, my bad. I'm, you know what it is? My mom went to Albright for a little bit. And for some reason, I thought it was in Florida. Uh, uh, so that's my mom mistake. went to Albright. That's pretty for, cool. For a short time, and then she ultimately ended up at NYU. Wow. Uh, yeah. Gosh, she's still with us. She's gonna hopefully be ninety-seven, folks, wow. in January. I just saw her in May after I got my shots. Um, but she lives in Florida, and I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to get back there because of the lunacy. I don't want to get sidetracked. We will probably talk about that later. But anyway, back to you. So you went to Albright. And what did you study there? I was a history German Greek major. <laughs> of course, as one often is. Um, do you still speak German? I do. How about Greek? Not, not well. Uh, well, it was ancient Greek. So. Ah, me frontitate now, I took ancient Greek, too, for a year. And that's all really? I remember. Which <laughs> I just said, don't worry, sailor. <laughs> it's a good phrase to have if you suddenly go back in time for a few thousand years and yeah. want to date a Greek sailor. Right. Uh, see, this is a very educational podcast. Yes. Um, the, I, only thing, the only thing I ever used my Greek for was when um, Rick Riordan's books were um we're out there the the one the first ones um i can't remember the names of them but anyway uh borders at the time had t-shirts that said like half-blood camp or whatever that was um and i looked at it and i was like that's not pronounceable in greek that can't be right so i went home <laughs> and i looked it up in my lexicon and sure enough there was a typo so i found a typo in ancient greek on a t-shirt in modern times that is how i've used my greek degree so far wow i <laughs> use my ancient greek there are more words that i know um i can see roots of words uh, mm. usually i know the word anyway but a good example boys and girls is an anthropus is a man or a person and anthropology of course is the study of men um, and naute is sailor, so you get nautilus mm -hmm. and nautical and astronaut, which is basically a space sailor. Right. You know what? This was no charge for that Greek lesson, boys <laughs> and girls. So back to you, because you're why people are listening. Um, what were you planning on doing with German, ancient Greek, and was it anthropology? I'm, I'm sorry. History. History. Um, actually, I started out uh, on a track to the ministry when I started college. Ah, now as a woman, yeah. which if people don't understand, so you're a woman. And when I think ministry, I get confused because I don't know your religious background. Oh, so, thank you, but well, priests are really the only one. Catholic priests are really the only one that are, are, are restricted to men. Um, I'm a United Methodist, so I was going to be ah. Pastor, we have got it. 
Got it. Women pastors now. You'd be um, an excellent pastor. <laughs> now, actually, um, my psychological profile said I'm not a great leader. Oh, well, maybe they're wrong. <laughs> you know, sometimes they're wrong. Well, maybe and... at 20, you know, like maybe at 20, I wasn't a great leader. So, yeah, you're, I'm not going to tell people your age or ask it even. This, uh, you're <laughs> not 20 anymore. And you've, got, than 20 now. <laughs> right, and you've gone through some life changes, as we all have. You've learned a few things. You've gotten whacked around a little bit because that's what life does to some people. Uh, well, and, you know, we learn from getting whacked around a little bit. And as a result, um, you know, you, you learn things and you change. So then, then I met my husband and I always say that the reason I'm not in the ministry is that he corrupted me and <laughs> so I blame it on him. Um, so then I was going to um, be a history professor. So I started a PhD program in Temple right after college. Um, my husband was going to medical school in Philly. So it was a nice, uh, but like for people who don't know temple university is in north philadelphia it's a huge university um yeah. they have a pretty good sports program there and a lot of different i mean it's a major university um the philly by the way for people who don't know is a great college town much like boston and that you've got university of pennsylvania there's a bunch of medical schools downtown there's there's just lots of schools um, <laughs> there's a lot of schools yeah so um so you, you went to Temple. Um, I started a, I started to get my PhD in like, I wanted like medieval history, but um, the summer before I got there, the advisor for the medieval department died. <laughs> That's a bad sign. I'm not going to lie. So they were like farming me out to all different other school. Like I went to a couple different schools for different classes and it got to be kind of chaotic and wasn't really what I liked. So I, I dropped out of that program and just kind of waitressed a bit and hung around with my husband who was in medical school and, or my, well, he was my boyfriend at the time, but, um, you know, I just started, like I was, um, typing up his papers and then everybody else's papers and, um, kind of well, that, that led to something. Didn't stuff. It? Yeah. So, you know, I got a job in his boss's office. And so they taught me, they figured I would someday be running Gary's office. So they taught me all the medical stuff. So that was my sort of entree into the medical. Area. Now, I don't want to say how many years ago, but were there computers involved at that point? Or was there it still were, typing? There were computers. <laughs> well, I, look, I, I remember, and I, I may have said this before here, I went to college with a portable typewriter. I left law school with a personal computer that was with a dot matrix printer. Yeah, um, we were on a dot matrix printer at the time. And my first law jobs, I went from having my own secretary to sharing a pool of secretaries. And uh, I don't think it would surprise, and having paralegals and whatnot, to I'm just me with a uh, a laptop and an iPhone and access to a lot of things online. Yeah. And I don't, I don't file real paperwork in courts anymore. For the most part, I e-file PDFs of documents. Wow. So that has been in a blink of an eye for the history of the law, a radical technological shift, which has impacted a lot of people in good and bad ways. And I'm just curious, you, you came in with computers, but let's face it, it was early on. If you're telling me the dot matrix, 
um, yeah. printer, you probably have undergone a big shift in your work too, oh, in that yeah. regard. Yeah. But, so like I did some transcription, like I had my own transcription business for a while, medical transcription. So I started out by that time we had laser printers, but um, uh, I used to go pick up the tapes from all the offices, like, and then go home and transcribe them and deliver them the next day all printed out. When you say tapes, you mean like dictaphone tapes, right? Yeah, like dictaphone tapes. Yeah. I mean, I remember dictating on a dict. Mm -hmm. And by the way, boys and girls, there was a company, I don't even know if it exists anymore, called Dictaphone. Yeah, Much yeah. like Xerox is like people think of it as a copy machine. Xerox is a trademark name. Dictaphone is, maybe was, a trademark name. And every lawyer had, back in that day, there was like a handheld thing with a cord that went to a reel-to-reel -reel, and then it was cassettes. And then it was a handheld cassette thing. And then ultimately we just- And they were tiny little cassettes. Yes, they were like mini or micro or whatever they call them, cassettes. And they were great, very easy to lose, um, <laughs> easy to knock under a car seat and never find again. So a few terrified moments for all of us back in those days when you wrote something extensive and it disappeared under a car. Uh, but I digress. Um, all this time, were you actually wanting to be a fiction writer? No. Um, I actually, at that time, at the same time, I, I started writing articles for magazines. I worked at a magazine briefly, a magazine company. Um, but uh, that's when I started freelancing. I actually, my first few articles were for a gun magazine. Um, I had a women's viewpoint column. I actually grew up, I mean, in Pennsylvania, I grew up hunting and like I had my hunting license and I actually am a pretty good shot. We have that in common uh, <laughs> in that I, my dad was a target shooter and oh, wow. I grew up around guns with a healthy respect for the safety. And I yeah. owned a 22 rifle and then I used to go pistol shooting with my dad and I've gone since then. Last time I shot was probably in Texas at a writer's conference where the hosts were like, oh, we'll take this New York liberal out shooting. He won't know what to do. And I, no pun intended, I smoked his butt yeah. uh, with his gun. It was just like a short barreled Glock of nine millimeter. But I did some nice grouping. And I mean, it's one thing, you know, if nobody's shooting back, it's certainly a lot easier to shoot yeah. a target. <laughs> Um, and it's all about breathing for those who want to know. Um, we will maybe someday do a show about shooting, but today is not that day. But shooting is a, that's one of those things. I'm one of those liberals who I actually like guns, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, so you wrote for a gun magazine. That's cool. And did you start to feel like, oh, I'm really good at this? Or when did you get the sense, regardless of fiction or nonfiction? Like, I've always been writing in some capacity in fact I was just I found an old folder the other day Let's see it right here. I was showing my daughter I was like going through like my mom had saved you know old report cards and stuff and uh, there was a note on one of them that said Jennifer has some really good stories and she always shares all of her ideas with all of us <laughs> my daughter got a kick out of the oh. sharing ideas with all of us um, why did she why'd she get a kick of that that, uh, she's like, I guess she thinks I tell everybody what I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that was a nice way of saying. I always have. <laughs> sharing is a nice way of saying oversharing, perhaps. I guess. But, <laughs> but, you know, as your daughter, she has, shall we say, a unique perspective. Yeah. 
I was like, oh, yes, I've always been a writer. And I, and I have always been a writer. It's just that I grew up in, you know, like blue collar. We lived on a homestead, you know, a lot of the times, a lot of the time while I was growing up, my parents were unemployed or underemployed, um, but we had animals and a garden and we hunted. Um, so, you know, that that's how we lived. But Living um, the frontier lifestyle. Yeah. So I always wrote, but I never really considered writing wasn't really considered a job. It was like you might have to write as part of your job, but it's not like a a way to make a living, I guess. Is So it never really occurred to me that, that I could be just a writer. Hmm. <laughs> Actually, it is hard to be just a writer, but. <laughs> um. well, but you know, what's interesting is if you don't know it's a possibility, it doesn't even happen. Right which is why I'm such a fan of having kids go to museums and orchestras and because maybe they'll be like, well, that's fine, but that's not my jam or whatever. And you're like, okay, great. But what about the kid who stands in front of a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh or, a, you know, Rothko or anything and suddenly just like, I want to do that. And I feel compelled to draw or this. I mean, you know, it's, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So, so right. as you start to write, I'm going to guess you develop even more of a love for it and also a, a um, confidence built in you. Yeah. And I always say creativity builds creativity. So like you start it and then more things occur to you. I mean, you grow, you grow in your own artistry as you practice it. So um yeah, once I started doing that, I'm like, this is cool. Let me try to do more of this. So, um, but I, um, it wasn't until after my mom passed away. My mom died of a brain tumor. Um, after Gary was in practice already, um, actually he'd already left practice and come back up here to Maryland. And we were, um, he was working for the FDA and uh, she passed away during that time. And then like a story hit me and just would not let me go. And that was my first kind of move into fiction. And I, I found NaNoWriMo and I wrote that story out and I thought I was done. Like it was out of my head, but I had made friends with the uh, liaison from NaNoWriMo that year. And the next year she's like, well, what are you doing for NaNo this year? And I'm like, uh, uh, nothing because like I had one story that was all I had <laughs> well, I want to stop you I want to stop you for a second because for the people who don't have the experience and I've always heard it NaNoWriMo uh but it could be both or neither or whatever um could you just explain to the listeners what you mean yes National Novel Writing Month that's why it's right now it's November correct right yes. I know because that's November. my birth month uh folks I'm turning the big six so if you want to wish me a happy birthday um, or, you know, want to know how you can get an Amazon gift card to me or whatever it is you need, um, go to isthatreallylegal.com. There's a place to leave messages, ask questions, all that sort of thing. Do it before I turn 60, because who knows if I'll even know how to use the computer after that. But back to you. I suggest um, that you will be able to use the computer after that. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I, uh, I think it's very interesting when I'm on social media to see people get excited in October about the novel yeah. they're going to write. And then yeah. it's like, it's like watching uh, a marathon where anyone can enter. Um, 
in some ways, I think the pros either don't care about it or use it as an impetus to wrap something up. While other people who are say, I've always had this book I want to write, finally, they're like, this is the thing that's going to get me to start. Mm-hmm. And it's like anything else. You discover whether it's right for you or not. But yes, so for you, you learned more about yes, the idea. And- the idea is to write 50,000 words in 30 days. And the philosophy behind it is a lot of people just like keep, and, and I'm guilty of this too, like they keep writing the first few chapters and then start editing and then they never get to the end. So the idea is that you know, 50,000 words is kind of a smallish novel, but um, the idea is to get a story arc out beginning to end. Um, and then you have something to edit because you can't, editing is what writing is all about. Like you can't edit a blank page. You, it's kind of like, so it's kind of like building a sandcastle. Mm, I think of it as like a skeleton. Yeah. You 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 build a skeleton, you throw some muscle on it. Yeah. And then you ultimately have some muscle and skeleton. You'll ultimately put some skin. I'm not a biologist. It's interesting that this is the metaphor I'm using considering (laughs) you. Who, your your main day job, is it still doing medical writing? It is. It is. Well, I think that's uh, editing, writing and editing. And, I'm um, not available, Jen. I'm sorry. I'm on the call <laughs> with you. Um, writing and editing, um, mostly editing right now, and teaching. I teach online, too. I teach medical coding, transcription, and electronic health records. I'm going to jump ahead, though, because time will fly by if I don't. Mm-hmm. At some point, you decided you wanted to get a master's of fine arts mm-hmm. in creative writing. Now, so people, by the way, it wasn't just creative writing. This is the only program that I'm aware of oh, that has years. this. Okay. Yeah, so what, what's your MFA in? First. My MFA is in writing popular fiction. Ooh. So. And it's from Seton Hill University, not to be confused with Seton Hall, very different. That's basketball. Right. (laughs) Seton Hill, which is, again, in Pennsylvania, in the middle of nowhere, quite honestly. I've been there, so I can say it. You have to go through a mountain. Yes. You literally have to drive through through a mountain. mountain. I'm not making it up. (laughs) And then you're like, where the hell am I? Oh, Seton Hill. Okay. A beautiful little campus, by the way. But the other thing that's fun about this program is it's non-residential, meaning people who attend this program, and I use the term attend loosely, for the most part, do it from home. And this is pre-pandemic. There was a requirement that you had to show up a week or two a year. You you could explain it because you did it. One week, twice a year. Got it. And they have dorms there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you could only use the, you could only use the dorms over the summer one because in January, the other residency, um, people were in the dorms. <laughs> they were just not on campus for the month, but, um, so you stay in area hotels, but, um, but there is a dorm option for the summer residency. Um, and it's the coolest, it is a beautiful campus uh, and it's, it used to be a convent um so yeah (laughs) so it's got a beautiful chapel on the second floor and but it it, it's such a cool building and there's a cool set of buildings and um we used we just call it the american campus of hogwarts it it is adorable um it's very 
it's small. And I went to college in a very small walkable place too. So I felt very welcome when I went. I'm going to fast forward a little bit because I'm making it about me. And if you hate that, go to isthatreallylegal.com and tell me you hate it. But um, I met you because I was asked to attend a weekend, give lectures, take pitches, uh, something along those lines, um, which I often did when I was a literary agent. And when I appeared at the conference, I was there with a couple of uh, writers and agents. It was a lot of fun, but I had a handler. And I think it was to make sure I stayed out of trouble. And that handler was a four <laughs> foot 10 powerhouse. <laughs> and it was you, right, Jennifer? Yeah, that was me. And uh, I was your minion. Right. Uh, that's what you called yourself. You said, I'm yeah. your minion. And I think one of the first things you did was gave me a bottle of water. And I was like, oh, this is the lifestyle to which I'd like to become accustomed. And you basically told me where to go, but in a nice way. And um, it, it was a really lovely weekend. I got to meet you and I got to meet a lot of other great writers and uh, both students and professionals. Daniel Older. I think was one of the people. Oh, Daniel was over. Yes, yes. Um, he yeah. was so much fun to hang out with. Yeah. I should have him on the podcast as well. Um, and uh, you know, we had a, a blast. And um, uh, by then, I had spoken to you at length about a variety of things, and then I had got to read your work later on, and I signed you as a client, mm -hmm. um, and never was able to do anything for you. And I'm sorry about that. <laughs> that's I stopped being an agent for reasons we I've probably already talked about on the podcast we don't have to go too deep in that but um your writing when I first read it was all about ancient Egypt mm -hmm. and I found that fascinating because uh, of two things number number one I enjoyed ancient Egypt when I was in school and of course went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and they have a reconstructed temple there and a variety of things. Uh, I went to the British Museum. They have a lot of things there too. Uh, but I since learned, and it might've been that I learned after meeting with you, that there are people who still practice the ancient Egyptian religions with those gods. And I always thought of that as a dead thing. And I would think for the most part, there's not a ton of people doing it, but yeah, it's still- yeah. I don't think it's, it's widespread. You but can... it's still there. It's okay to, it's, I guess, dead enough that you can play in that universe. You know, you don't want to play in, uh, a lot of my writing, a lot of my writing is focused on mythology. So, uh, but you don't want to sort of play in a mythology that is still, or, or a religion that's still active because. Well, I think it's interesting that you say mythology and religion. And you probably, like a lot of writers, have read Joseph Campbell just because mm -hmm. Joseph Campbell is such a, uh, a good writer himself and talks about the hero's journey. And it's valuable for a lot of people. But it's an interesting distinction between mythology and religion. And I will now cross a line, and I don't care, it's my podcast. But if I look at Catholicism, and there's a lot of you Catholics out there, and I'm happy for you, and it's great, and I'm not making fun of Catholicism, just hear me out. You, if you're not Catholic, you can look at the beliefs of Catholicism and see a certain element of mythology there. You know, you there's I'm not taking away from people's beliefs. 
any Christian. I mean, Christian. sure. Let's go Christianity. I, I like to, but the Catholics have a particular because they have saints. So when the Catholics say they're monotheistic, you know, I'm this. I'm from the old Jewish tradition. I'm like, well, but you talk about this Trinity thing. That by definition is not monotheism. Um, and then we go on to the saints. And one of the big, you know, uh, commandments is not worshiping idols. And you go into any church and it's Catholic church, that is. And it's filled with idols. And But, but that's a saint. And you're praying to that saint. It's just it's confusing to this old Jew, but I understand that it, I, I would just hope that people could step outside of their beliefs and see, oh, I could see how you could see that, but, right. but, but, but there's a certain, you know, I don't know if mythology is just religion that's not practiced anymore, or it's more the story than the belief system. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that now, but uh, both of them are great. Um, there's a ton of material in both those baskets for someone who wants to tell stories. Sure. And I could see that you would be like, yeah, but I'm not going to go into the Catholic basket because there's too many, first of all, there's too many people who are experts, whatever that means. Sure. And then there's too many people who will be offended or offend themselves with what I say if I suddenly have you know, Mary show up in a certain way that's at odds with what they believe. Right. You're less likely if that is it Basque, who's the cat goddess? Yes. Yeah, Basque. Yeah. Bas you know, if, if you throw some stuff with Basque out there, you know, you're not going to suddenly get a tidal wave of anger mail right. about right. it. Probably. Right. And plus, frankly, that stuff is fascinating to people who don't grow up with it which is always the way I think if it's not your thing and suddenly this whole giant belief system shows up and you're so alien to how we are brought up mm -hmm. um, with, you know, gods that are various animals or part animals and, and have all of these relationships with each other, much like Hinduism, you know, it's like I have uh, a Ganesh in practically every room of my house. I love Ganesh and what Ganesh stands for. But when you know about how Ganesh comes into being, um, and I don't want to, you know, if I, you look it up, folks, I'm not, the whole thing is it's quite a story um, mm -hmm. of a child surprising someone and getting killed and an elephant head replacing their head. And there's a lot of stuff going on mm -hmm. and it's very alien to how I was brought up or how you were brought up. So I would think that um, looking at this prop, I mean, now that I've said all of this, I should probably let you speak. When you discovered all of this, did your mind just get blown and you were excited by it all? Well, so I've always been, uh, I, I've always read mythologies, like um, big mythology books from the time I was little. Like, so, I, and, you know, I, having grown up in the church, my dad's a pastor. So um, I love, and, and being a writer is all about making connections. Um, and then when you start to learn about, influences on so even on on christianity on early christianity that came from other places so there's a, a lot of connections between um say egyptian mythology certainly greek mythology but um when i learned about the connections between like greek mythology the influences it had on later religions such as christianity like set there's a lot of features of the greek uh the ancient 
Egyptian god Set that eventually became used in our our ideas for Satan, um, which is now where a lot of Set Set wasn't always considered evil, but in our kind of interpretation of ancient Egypt, Set is considered evil because we now equate him with Satan. Um, even set Satan, you know. Well, it's um, interesting that just the whole notion of good and evil that exists in our culture, regardless of the re current religions or mindsets, doesn't exist in every culture. No, absolutely not. And I, my book is really a lot about that, about gray areas. And, and it's about faith. Um, my, my pastor at church always used to kind of tease me because every once in a while we'll be in the middle of a sermon and I'll be pulling out my notebook and writing furiously because I would get ideas like they would say something it would it would trigger an idea for my story set in ancient Egypt like uh, um and so faith I mean faith no matter what faith you have faith is faith um it there's certain aspects of it and it doesn't matter what it is you believe in sometimes that there but there are similarities across faiths for how we deal with the things that we believe in well can you tell us again well i don't think you've told people the title of your book and where it's at right now because i don't think it's with a publisher yet uh no uh my working title is chaos rules um it is with still with um the agency but it is being read by a publisher in Germany right now. Excellent. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I haven't. It's actually Hobbit Pressa in Germany has my book right now. So I think it would be cool since I was a German major to have it first be published in German. Um, I agree. I don't know if that anything will happen with that or not. Well, it just goes to show, first of all, that the world is a very connected place, including in publishing. Uh, because there's lots of agents and editors literally all over the world and authors, of course. Um, and you just never know where the book will spark an interest and then spread. Um, just not at all like it, but Stieg Larsson, who I believe was Swedish, and his whole um, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. The I mean, that is probably in tens if not hundreds of languages by now mm -hmm. uh it's been made into movies in several different countries and incarnations it's that there either was a team no i think they were all movies and um that i mean is a very heavy duty thing i'm not equating your book remotely with that because it's not got to do with mythology at all it's just <laughs> i think that sometimes americans and i would guess most of my podcast listeners are americans we have a very ethnocentric view of the world, like the publishing only lives here mm -hmm. in New York. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've had agents and writers on from Europe, certainly in England, and then people from other places as well. Uh, and there's a lot of publishing that goes back and forth across the water. So who knows? This could be the well, big breakthrough. Yeah. So it was really interesting how this came about was I actually proofread uh, my ver the very first official proofreading job I ever got for fiction, which I was really excited about, um, was uh, a book that was put out last year by Gary Benger. Um, it's called Unfettered Journeys, really fantastic. Um, 
and he self-published. And he is, uh, he was actually the first CFO for eBay. Wow. Uh, and he then went on, he has a degree, he has like all kinds of degrees. One of them is philosophy. And really, he never intends to publish another book. And this book really was, he has like a, this, it's like a new philosophical idea. And he wrote a science fiction story to sort of a liter, up upmarket science fiction story to illustrate his um, philosophical ideas. And I got to proofread it. Um, and he then went on to, he's in the process right now of putting it out in several different languages. So he has people and he hires, you know, he finds his people. And so he has a, had a translator for his German one. And then he had um, this woman who was proofreading it. And when she was proofreading it, he, he said to her at one point, you remind me of Jennifer who proofread the English version. So she got in touch with me. And so she's like, oh, you know, and then I, I recommended her for something and she thanked me and said, Hey, what can I look out for? See if I can recommend you for something. And I said, I did medical stuff and all this stuff. And then 15 minutes later, I get an email from her that says what you really do. She goes, I went to your website and I see that you write fiction. And um, I have a friend at Hobbit Pressa here in Germany do you want me to pass on your book? <laughs> and I was like, well, I have an agent. She's like, well, let me get in touch with your agent. So she did. She got called Shannon and they got it over to Hobby Pressa. So that's how that happened. Uh, you never know awesome. how things are going to happen. <laughs> no. And um, you were right in saying, talking about how things are connected. You just never know how things will be connected. Mm -hmm. um, and I love the, I, I just, I think there are no mistakes and I think there are no accidents. Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. So I really dig that. And that makes the timeline of publishing, traditional publishing, much easier to take. And, and Explain mm, that. maybe it's because I'm older <laughs> that I'm like, so a lot of people are like, I can't believe you're still pursuing this publishing thing. And I'm like, mm, it is what it is. Like, I can't, there's nothing I can do to hurry up the process. Uh, you know, happen. I think it's all because nobody farms anymore. Back when we were farmers, you would plant something. You wouldn't go back the next day and go, where's my plant? Right. <laughs> you know, but for some of us, you know, when I do legal work for people, I'll get a call two days later. So is this done? Like, no, first of all, you know, there's hundreds of clients and lots of different plates are spinning. And as we discussed already, I can do certain things, but I'm waiting to hear back from other attorney or court or judge or whatever the case may be so people have unrealistic expectations or they just somehow we live in a culture that has gotten rid of delayed gratification so mm. you know well, i'm I, not known for i'm not known for being a fan of delayed gratification but <laughs> I, I don't know that anybody is um, with the exception of some alternative communities, and we're not going to have that discussion now. But I will say that um, not being able to have any patience can make life difficult. And, yeah. and it's not just patience, also an understanding that you do your thing, and then you get busy doing something else and let the work happen that is mm -hmm. not you, that you're not in charge of. You do your best work, then you hand it off to the universe, let the universe do its thing, however you may think that is. And then you will ultimately get a response. Sometimes it's a year goes by and there's no response. 
that is a response. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no response in a year is a kind of response. Mm -hmm. Or the no in a month, mm -hmm. or the no, but here's some things that might interest me if you make these changes. I mean, I always loved when I was an agent to get a no with suggestions because that is an invitation mm. to resubmit. Often it was an invitation to resubmit with changes. And then yeah. you just have to- And you always learn something. Yeah, and sometimes it's like, no, these are terrible ideas. And obviously that's <laughs> not our editor. And sometimes it's like uh, an ego battle where you have to tell your client, look, I know you're in love with your book the way it is. I'm just saying, if you want to sell to this house, we should have a conversation about enacting these changes. I learned, I learned that early on in the Seton Hill program um, with my mentor, Maria Snyder. Um, when I first came, I had had this, uh, this idea. Oh, the book that I eventually wrote actually started out as a NaNoWriMo novel. And so, I, and I kept changing the beginning. And so I was learning all the things about point of view and blah, blah, blah. And um at one point, when you say point of view, you mean like how you write your characters or the yeah, story? First, is the point, story yeah. an omniscient overall? Yes. We're seeing it all happen, or is Third. it from the point of view of a particular character? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I just want to be clear, just to make it clear for people. Okay. Um, and then at, at one point, she kept she kept saying, "Your beginning is too slow. It's too slow. It starts too slow." And uh, I was like, "Listen, it's historical fantasy. So typically." His, re, readers of historical novels and readers of fantasy novels are very used to that slow burn type of beginning, you know, but honestly, popular fiction now starts is very focused on starting, you know, in the middle of the story, you know, right. And which is, which is a, a reaction or. We used to call it the MTV generation. You yes. Know, if it's you look at media and people are watching movies and they start you know right there you, you have to be drawn in from the very first sentence right if you watch um, movies from the 30s or 40s they'll do what's called a two shot or a three shot and leave it there meaning the mm -hmm. two or three characters will be in the same shot and we're just watching them as opposed mm -hmm. to if you look at movies now they'll do that establishing shot of what's going on and then they'll do single shots back and forward back and forward until they do close-ups back and forward back and forward uh it creates this illusion of action maybe and also deals with shrinking attention spans mm -hmm. but it is interesting to relax into an older movie and mm -hmm. feel the pacing which is very different mm -hmm. so anyway so, so we had this battle like i was like no i like it this way and she was like but this program uh, the, your master's thesis has to be a marketable novel. They have to determine that it's marketable. And sure, you can write a slow burn beginning, but it's not going to be popular fiction. You're going to be in a niche market. If you want to sell this novel, make it marketable to the majority of the pop population now, um, you got to write a faster beginning. You know, it's interesting for people who don't know, you should look up things like genre fiction that is a great term and also literary fiction mm -hmm. this is a distinction that we're sort of talking about a little bit i don't want to talk about literary fiction because no. I, I really don't know what the heck i'm talking about except it's like uh i think i feel like it's supposed to be important so that's what we'll call it but 
genre fiction is generally the genres of popular fiction like romance, um, horror, uh, mysteries, espionage. You know, it's again, what's so great about the program that Seton Hill does and some of these other few places is that if you want to learn how to make money as an author, and obviously there's no guarantee, that means the work you make has to be marketable. It's the equivalent in art school of drawing something that people want to buy versus something that's incredibly challenging. Not everybody wants their home to be filled with art about man's inhumanity to man. It can <laughs> be a little difficult. But if there is beautiful landscapes or floral scenes, and I don't mean, you know, it doesn't have to be crap. It can be really great. And I, <laughs> frankly, you'll see behind me, there's a great uh, piece of art here done mm -hmm. by somebody's sort of famous. I won't go into it, but it's pleasant. It's not challenging. Um, and I feel that popular fiction is that way too, in that, I mean, of course it can be challenging, but it's not going to be Ulysses. You know, it's, you, you're going to have to be able to understand the beginning, middle and end of the story, who's talking, when it's happening, those kind of things, which I think are incredibly valuable to anyone who wants to tell stories. So I salute Seton Hill. And if they want to send me to come lecture as an attorney or anything else, they should reach out to me. I had a blast there when I was People there. at Seton Hill will probably be watching, listening to this podcast, though. There you go. Uh, that, was a good, so, that was a good plug. There. So what's, first of all, how can people follow you and your progress? Um, do you, are you on social media? I know you are. Yeah. So just, yeah. Yeah. What's the best way they can follow you? Um, my, uh, my handle on Twitter is at Jen, J-E-N, Delazana. D E L L A Z A N N A. Uh, I was going to say dot com, but my website is jennifer.delazana.com. So, um, but then all the social media is Jen Delazana uh, because there was already a Jennifer Delazana. How weird is that? I am literally the only Jennifer Delazana in the world. Well, how in the world? There's no hyphens. <laughs> there's no hyphens in what you're doing. Not in the social media stuff. There's a apostrophe in my name. Got it. I thought I'd be the only Eric Rubin. I've since <laughs> met quite a few. No way. <laughs> yeah, there's one who's an attorney who went to NYU. I think he taught there and now he teaches at a Texas university. And it's all about the Second Amendment, gun rights and limitations on gun ownership. Uh, oh. You can check him out. It might be Eric M. Rubin and I'm Eric W., uh -huh. And we have threatened to have lunch sometime if we are <laughs> ever in the same state. He's younger and more handsome. <laughs> I'd love to, you know what? You just, I should have him on because the second amendment is a pretty interesting, you know, with all the stuff going on today in our lovely country, mm -hmm. it's interesting. You know, um, you're a mom, your daughter's mm -hmm. in college now. Or I have one daughter who dropped out of college. Oh, sorry. Or okay. not sorry. No, no actually, that's good. She's working uh, with a DOD. Uh, yeah, she works as a. That's the Department uh, of Defense, boys and girls. Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. She, she worked for, um, she did a work study program uh, with them during high school um, and has a clearance. So now she's got a great job and they're going to, they're, they offered to pay for her to go back for her degree, but she's not really sure if she wants to. She wants to work in gaming and she's well, moving I think, to Canada. 
What I think is interesting <laughs> is that for people who live in Maryland and Virginia, they have a completely different culture than the rest of the country. So they forget that most of the country has no idea what the government does or who the government yes, is. Yes, it's true. So when you say DOD, <laughs> people in New York have no idea what that means most of the time. That's, so so that's the Department of Defense. And when you say she has a clearance, you know, there might be a trucker going, is it 10 feet, 12 feet? They, you know, they don't, most people other than who live in Maryland or Virginia don't realize you mean a security clearance, which she is a very important thing to have if you want to work yeah. in certain aspects of the government. Yeah, it means that they've checked you out and you're yeah. not some type of security threat to the United States. Just as a side note, uh, some former children of the, well, not former children, some children of the former president uh, didn't get security clearances or had them sidestepped. Um, and that was, in my opinion, very problematic and still worth looking into. Uh, I know you are not going to talk to that, but I just dropping that <laughs> in because I'm still pissed about it. Um, so while your Egyptian story is making the rounds in Germany and maybe elsewhere, what else are you up to right now? Um, a lot of writing, a lot of editing, a lot of editing, like during the pandemic, my work went crazy. Like I think the people who were already freelancing just got slammed with all the work, extra work. I don't know what it was, but what kind of, of editing are you talking about? Medical mostly. Um, uh, and then I, and, and, and my classes, my class size, my classes went up too. Um, uh, but Where I Where are you teaching of out of? Ed to go. Education to go. So got it. to geo. Um, and which has been a fantastic company to work for. Ah, and then I also, I also do a lot of work for the Transcription Association, which there's really only one, called the Association for Healthcare Documentation Integrity. And they just awarded me Educator of the Year this year. Mm. So I was, that was my first award, which is amazing because like the people who've gotten this award before have their name on like textbooks. Like, I was like, wow, I was just floored that they gave me this award. It was amazing. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, but writing awards, I also got to, uh, I, I sent two stories into Writers of the Future and got um, honorary, honorable mentions for, for both of them. That's fantastic. So I'm hoping to do some more of that. One of them was the the Egyptian short story that I wrote that that I sent to you that one time about Alexandria. So nice. I was very excited about that. That's, that's fantastic. A, that's a cool company too. Um, I bet you're hoping that once all of the stuff is over, you'll be able to go back to do some conferences. Is that accurate? Oh yes, I love conferences. I, I just want to tell people listening in if you're a writer. Um, there is no better way to learn about publishing than to go to a conference, meet other writers, meet editors, meet agents, attend any kind of seminar on any aspect of it. Just you, it's, there's no A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four. You just got to throw yourself into the deep end and you will learn. You'll, and you'll make mistakes and you'll learn from those. I mean, wouldn't you say, does that sound yeah. right to you? Yeah. Because you, uh, as much as I like Stephen Hill. Is, yeah, making mistakes is just, you have to make mistakes. Right. And I, as no. I said, as much as I like Seton Hill, you don't have to get an MFA. Absolutely not. Um, you can just get in there 
and learn uh, as the universe throws stuff your way. <laughs> Do you have any? Sometimes you get like halfway through your what you've been waiting through, and you're like, okay, now is it? Like I wouldn't say like, oh, you need an MFA to write, but sometimes you're like where I was. Like I was stuck. The only reason, only re- I found I found Seton Hill at the point where I'm like, okay, I have this idea for the book. I'm working through it, but I don't kind of didn't know where to go next. And I thought I found Seton Hill and I'm like, okay, this will give me a deadline. Like this will make me, because without this, I'm not going to finish the book in two and a half years without it. Like I was already a working writer. I'm like, ah, how much are they going to teach me? But who cares? I'll get the deadlines. Right. Uh, And then after the first class, I was like, oh goodness, I don't know anything. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the end, when I graduated, I'm like, can I do it again? Because I'm pretty sure I don't know anything. Not that they don't teach you anything. There's just so much to learn. You know, William <laughs> Goldman was uh, a top-notch screenwriter in Hollywood, known for such movies and books as um, uh, The Princess Bride, um, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And he wrote a book, I believe, something about stories uh, in the screen trade. And his his most famous line from that book, I think, is that nobody knows anything. Mm. You know, they have no idea what's going to hit or miss. Mm. I feel like publishing is just like that. Every time I went to a conference, people were like, what should I be writing? How could I possibly know what you should be writing? (laughs) You don't even know. This would be a much easier business. Yeah, but it's like, (laughs) it's every aspect of show business is that, you know, you're an actor, what should I be auditioning for? Well, that's a whole other conversation. Or as a musician, (laughs) what should I be writing? Like, how could I possibly... I think you have to go where the blood flow goes, mm-hmm. you know, where there's some guts and, and passion that takes you there, you know, to have me write a, and I, I'm, I'm a writer of sorts, but I'm certainly not writing popular fiction right now, but to have me write an inspirational romance where there's no heat level at all would be a tragic mistake. I would, <laughs> I would kill myself. I just can't imagine writing well, a love story with no sex. This is why you have to make mistakes. So like the, it, you know, you always hear that Hollywood and the publishing companies are always looking for the next big hit. And they say, we want something different, but really they don't want something different. They want something that already hit before so they can reproduce it. Um, but really the only things that really make a big difference are new things. Well, I think that but the they're truth, hard to take a chance on. You're not wrong. It's why revivals do well on Broadway and mm-hmm. why, you know, uh, there's like 28 Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. But I will also say that Hollywood doesn't know what it wants until you yeah. show it to them. Right. So you have to make mistakes because you have to get eventually to a new place, a place where only you can get, only you have this to offer. Um, and certain mistakes are okay, like what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Don't make the mistake of being rude to someone. No, Don't, you know, there's a, there's a, there are good and bad mistakes. True, very true. <laughs> and, and speaking of being rude, I'm going to have to wrap it up soon. Is there anything that yeah. we didn't talk about that you feel the people need to know, or that you wanted to talk about? So my other, another thing that I'm working on is um, a collaboration between me and a musician from Nashville. Actually, I'm ha- I have two collaborations between me and a, new- and a musician from Nashville, but one of them I had a meeting with a publisher about yesterday. So that is Excellent. very, very, ex- and it was a great meeting. So um, that's the other thing I'm working on. So hopefully there actually will be a 
something out there with my name on it soon. Awesome. Please keep me and the rest of us posted. I will happily talk about it um, and have you back when it blows up to be a huge thing. That would be awesome. <laughs> but until then, Jennifer Delazana, it's been so great to catch up with you. Please be well. Thanks so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric and Ruben. <laughs> I have to say it again, boys and girls, because apparently I just had a stroke. Um, thanks for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. It was just great to see you. You too. This time I recorded it. And well, I think I recorded it last time and then for some reason I dumped it. So I apologize for that. I think that was um, better anyway. Yeah, I felt great. You, you feel good? Yeah. Good. Be well. I love you. you. I'm off to do the other 8 million things. I'll see you on social media. Yes. Keep me posted on what's going on. I will. Um, and be well. You too. It's good to see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.